0: Well, it's summertime, I love to travel, I love the excitement of going to a new place, meeting new people, witnessing the kingdom's growth there, tasting new foods, seeing new sights, but when the bags are packed and the return plane is boarded, nothing compares to the feeling of coming home. In fact, it is difficult to think of much else. The moment I've settled into my seat on the plane, my mind often try, oftentimes drifts into what it's going to be like when I come home, when I finally get there. How nice it will be to hear my crazy kids scream, daddy's home, as they rush me. How great it will feel to hold my wife's hand as we swap stories on the back porch, how fun it will be to sit around the dinner table again with a home-cooked meal, right? Just something I'm familiar with, something so good and tasty and, and, and something that my wife has poured her heart into, and to hear little voices laughing hysterically at my dad jokes. It's in the midst of these daydreams in this little plane seat that I often find myself staring at old pictures of my wife and kids. As the anticipation of my homecoming grows, so does my homesickness. I just get increasingly homesick the closer I get to home. And sometimes it's so strong that any type of delay, cancellation, or layover feels like absolute torture. Sometimes I look at the plane itinerary and I just think, I'm gonna have to sit here for four hours in this airport. And it's the last stop before I get home. I'm gonna be sitting here for four hours wishing I was there. And then the moment finally comes. The last plane is boarded, I go to the baggage claim, I pick up my bags, I hop into someone's car, pull into the driveway, I knock on the door, and I'm greeted by sheer, loud joy on the other side. For a Christian, life is like one long journey. We are travelers that are, are walking through a dark world filled with all kinds of suffering, all kinds of disappointment, all kinds of distress, and that is why the Psalms of Ascent is so good for us to read. These Psalms are like pictures of home that we can pull out when needed and daydream about what it will be like when we finally get to God's city. They sustain us when we deal with the turbulence of suffering and anxiety. They stir up our longings and anticipation for the family dinner that's still to come. They give us imagery that help us imagine the joy that awaits us. So think of each one of these psalms as these wallet-sized photographs of home, of your father, of your God, of the city that you're heading to. And so we should study the Psalms of Ascent's. What a perfect time to study the Psalms of Ascents this summer, because we, like the Israelite pilgrims of old, are homesick for our place, our true home, a heavenly Jerusalem where our God dwells with his people. Okay, so hopefully you feel that homesickness stirring up. It's a good thing to be homesick. It's a good thing to be homesick when it comes to the home that we have with God. The Psalms of sense, you may not ever have ever heard that term, but if you pay attention to the little superscriptions up above, some of those are actual original to the original psalm. So like a Psalm of David, if you read that, that, that was actually written in the original language. The Psalms of Ascent were actual, the actual titles given to these psalms when the writer put pen to paper. The Psalms of Ascent, or the songs for going up, begin in Psalm 120, and they end in Psalm 134, and they form a bit of a psalter within the psalter. There's a collection of them. They're all titled the same. And in essence, these psalms are road trip songs. It's time to go on a trip, pull out the road trip songs, time to go to Jerusalem, there was annual pilgrimages, it was time to go to the temple, and so these were the songs that they sang. Now, throughout the later Old Testament, to go up or to ascend refers to going up and out of exile and returning to the promised land. The image of ascending, this, this idea of the songs for going up, may be due to the fact that Jerusalem sat on a hill. If you know anything about the geography of Israel, you know it's surrounded by valleys, and Jerusalem is built on Mount Moriah. It's built on a mountain and literally to get from the valley to Jerusalem you have to go up you're going uphill in this journey and on top of that hill on the highest point of that hill sits the temp- temple mount where the lord dwells and so as they're traveling to the temple they're literally going through these deep valleys that symbolize their suffering and they're going up hillsides and finally up the temple steps and the further up they go the further they get the closer they get to Jerusalem the closer they come to god's city the place of shalom, the place of peace in God's presence. Now, reading through the Psalms, you may be wondering what in the world they have to offer you. There's a number of themes to keep your eyes out for. These Psalms have a little something for everybody. We see a lament in these Psalms caused by suffering. So if you've ever suffered, if you've ever seen the brokenness of this world, these Psalms have something for you. We see a desperation for God's deliverance. We see trust in God's preservation. And perhaps most potently, we see homesickness. We find out and we learn how to be homesick for God. And it's this homesickness for God that characterizes these psalms and makes them appropriate for us as spiritual pilgrims. As we delve into these psalms, we can imagine ourselves marching alongside these ancient Israelites Steadily going upwards, steadily going uphill, marching through valleys and up mountain sides with our eyes looking up to the exalted city where we will find rest, restoration, and peace. Real, potent peace. Joy, strength, comfort in the presence of God. So, these psalms hopefully will teach you how to hunger. These psalms will hopefully teach you how to thirst. You see, sometimes we think that we've already made it home, and these psalms remind us we have not yet made it home. That there is a homecoming still to come that there is a great arrival that we're marching closer and closer to. So these these psalms appropriately dealt with give us a glimpse into what's to come, but they stir us up to want it more and want it more. The greatest danger facing the church today, I I will put my five years worth of paychecks down on it. The greatest danger facing the church is not any kind of ideology outside of the church. It's not political rivals. It's not differences of opinion. It's not different people. The greatest danger facing God's people today is that they do not want him as they should. They do not have a homesickness that characterizes them as pilgrims. Instead, we're people who tend to dupe ourselves into thinking that we have made it home, and this is it, so make yourselves comfortable, gain that comfort, whatever possible, preserve comfort. It's a need, right? And yet these psalms remind us, no, your greatest need is to want the Lord. The greatest danger facing you right now is nothing outside of yourself. It is a lack of desire and craving. For the Lord. Imagine how weird it would be for a father or a husband to be gone for many, many weeks. And then you ask him on his return, Well, are you excited to be home? Well, no, not really. There's something unhealthy about that, isn't there? At a minimum, we wouldn't think, Well, that guy's a good dad. I think as Christians, there's something weird about us if we're not, there's something off if you don't want to go home. If you want this world more than you want what's to come, you see, we tend to flip it upside down where we think that what we have now is greater than what's to come. What's to come means a loss of all that we have right now. My friends, that is not the way that we see it in scripture. As pilgrims, we know we're marching to something more, something greater, something better. Take the house, take the car, take the bank account, take the, 401c, uh, the, the, the 401k, take whatever, We have something greater. We are heading home. So I pray that this summer, as you're traveling and you're going on vacations and you're going places, that in the midst of traveling, this image of you as a sojourner, as a pilgrim, as a traveler who is going home, will be so potent in your life. And that by the end of this summer, you will not just desire heaven someday, but you'll be homesick for it, that you'll groan for it, that you'll weep for it, that you'll dream about it. That's my hope. That's just introduction stuff. (laughs) Psalm 120 and 121 is reflective of all these themes. Psalm 120, we find the lament, because the psalmist is in exile from the promised land. He's desperate for deliverance. And then in Psalm 121, the psalmist expresses his trust that God will preserve him. In both of these psalms, his homesickness for God's presence is made apparent. He makes it absolutely clear. And so by looking at these two psalms together, you may be wondering why we're doing Psalm 120 and 121 together, but these two psalms taken together teach us, number one, that life outside the promised land is difficult and dangerous, that's Psalm 120. Life outside the promised land is difficult and dangerous. Psalm 121 teaches us that God will keep his people. He will keep them, and he will bring them home. They're not gonna get left in their exile. They will be brought up and brought out and brought into the land of his promise. Now, the general tone as you open up Psalm 120 is that of lament. The entire psalm highlights the psalmist's misery. He describes his state as one of distress. In my distress. I called the Lord. While we don't know exactly what trouble had befallen the psalmist, his words seem to insinuate that he's in trouble because he is outside of the promised land. He's, he's away from where he wants to be. He's not home. He's outside. He uses, uh, he talks about how he's sojourning in Meshech and among the tents of Kedar, both of which are far flung regions outside of Israel. Meshach's up north and it's probably somewhere where Turkey is. Kedar is way south in Arabia. Both of these extremes, he feels like he is in absolute isolation and exile from God. He could not be further from home. It's an intense exile. Just, just I'm not home and it hurts. I'm in Meshach and Kedar, but I'm not in Jerusalem. That's the whole tenure of Psalm 120. Now, adding to this desperate plight is the fact that people who live in these places are antagonistic to Yahweh and his people. They are people with lying lips and a deceitful tongue. Now, in the Old Testament, lying and deceiving is comparable to violence. In fact, it's compared to like a razor that you slit someone's throat with. Psalm 52.2 is an example of this. Your tongue plots destruction like a sharp razor, you worker of deceit. So, not only do the people of Midar, uh, Midar, Meshech and Kedar destroy others by deceiving them, they're also warmongers. They want war. He wants peace. They hate peace. And though the psalmist continues to advocate for peace, they want war. So, he's living among these people that are deceptive, they're liars, they try to destroy others and kill others in that way, and they want war. Let's. Fight. That's their whole chant. Fight, fight, fight. Can you imagine living? That's high school, right? I mean, this whole Psalm Psalm 121 is like the psalmist is living in high school. Filled with, in a place that just feels godless and surrounded by these people that are beaten up on him and they want fighting and they want war and so we come to Psalm 120 and we find the psalmist isolated and alone and among violent deceivers. It's a painful state that fuels his homesickness. He says things that we don't normally say. We normally don't say things like, woe is me. It's not hard to translate that Hebrew because it, typically, it generally sounds like this in the Hebrew word. Whoa. I mean, this is a groaning that he's got, woe is me. Have you ever just woken up one day and just go, Ugh. Anybody ever had days like that? Okay, okay, good. I'm so glad. Hands all over it. That's great. Praise God. It, it happens to everybody. It, it has been too long. He, he uses words like this. It's been too long since he last saw the promised land, And all he can do is... Pray, calling out to the Lord in his distress, and hope for the day that justice will be poured out on the violent. In verse three, he asks a question, what shall be given to you? He's talking to these violent people. What shall be given to you, and what more shall be done to you, you deceitful tongue? And then he answers his own question in verse four, a warrior's sharp arrows with glowing coals of the broom tree. Now that, that may sound like it's warlike language, and that he's answering violence with violence. But I think it's important to understand what he's actually doing because it's instructive for us. He's not just, he's not making threats here. He's not gonna say, I'm gonna kill you, okay? He's not making threats. He's not planning his vengeance. He's not plotting out some kind of war strategy against these people. What he's doing is he's expressing his hope for justice. Someday, these warmongering people will get what they want, and when they get it, they won't like it. One day, the war they crave, the war they rage against God and God's people will turn back on their own heads. We see this over and over in the Old Testament, especially the Proverbs, where those who try to trap others fall into their own traps. Those who roll a stone uphill figuratively, to push it over the cliff, cliff on top of somebody else's head, it rolls back on them. Here we have get people who want war, and they're going to die by war. They want the sword, and by the sword they're going to die. He wants God's justice. That's all he, he's, he's set such a plight, he can't do anything about it. There's not, he's not going to wage some kind of Rambo-type war where he loads up his quiver and he goes to war with these people. No, all he can do is realize he's outside the promised land with violent people and hope that someday God's justice will pour out. I think we live in very similar times, don't we? You see, it's this time where we're left trusting, okay, God said, vengeance is mine and recompense for the time when their foot shall slip for the day of their calamity is at hand and their doom comes swiftly. Maybe you sympathize with the psalmist's suffering. Like you, you feel isolated and alone. Like him, you feel isolated alone. Like him, you feel as if you've dwelt in suffering for far too long. Like him, you feel the anxiety and distress caused by the deception and the warmongering that characterizes our bent and fallen world. If you understand how the psalmist feels, then you can also follow his example. In his distress, he does not despair. He doesn't go on angry tirades. He doesn't tweet about it. Nor does he plot out vengeance. Someday we're going to get him. He doesn't do any of that. He simply calls out for God and puts his hope completely on God doing what only God can do. God is the righteous God. God is the righteous king. The God who is righteous will do what is right. He will repay This is the God who will not leave his afflicted, suffering, persecuted people unavenged. He is a God who is good. And so we cry out, just like the psalmist did, as as Christian pilgrims, we cry out trusting that like the psalmist hoped, as the psalmist trusted, that God is a God who sees our affliction, who hears our groaning who knows our suffering and remembers his covenant. Do you trust that? Whatever you may be going through, whatever fears you may be facing, do you trust that God is the God who hears, sees, knows, and remembers? That he is the God who answers your suffering. Is there in your suffering. You see, life in the valley of exile is always going to be full of grief. You are going to bury loved ones. You are going to have to face the doctor. You live in a world where life insurance is a necessity. You are going to die and suffer. And yet, like the psalmist, we are pushed by Psalm 120 and 121 to trust that no matter how far, out, how far we live outside of the promised land, how far we live into the valley of death, that God still is near enough to hear our cries for salvation. You see, he feels like he lives in Meshach and Kedar, and yet God, who, who is said to dwell in Jerusalem, hears him. He cries out from Meshach, knowing that no matter what the distance is, we're talking about this, huge distance, that would have taken years to travel this distance, that even then, God still hears. Do you live in this moment where you realize you are living in valley of suffering, valley of hardship, and yet, as deep and as far away as you might feel from the land of promise, God is still actively hearing, seeing, knowing, and remembering. No matter how far into exile you feel, God is there, even there, especially there, and so we live in this exile, and yet we hope in God in this exile, and that's essential to our walk as pilgrims. We live simultaneously in distress and hope. Don't listen to the falsehoods that say that the Christian life is only hope, only good, only joy, and that whatever you do, you're only going to get that. No, you are people who live in both distress and hope simultaneously. In his poem, Bittersweet, George Herbert depicts our present paradox. Apparently, he was going through something bad at the time. And here's what he writes I will complain. Yet praise, I will bewail, approve, and all my sorrow sweet days, I will lament and love. For the psalmist, we learn how to lament and love. From the psalmist, we learn how to lament the suffering, lament the distress, to cry out, to allow the pain to bring us to groaning for God. And at the same time, we also grow in our love of knowing the Lord, of having him as our God. We can grieve and mourn, but we do not grieve as those who have no hope. We are at the root of our very being, people who hope in God at every single turn. No matter what we face, nuclear war, economic disaster, cancer, death, having to wear a stupid T-shirt on Father's Day, whatever it is, we are people who hope in God. Every single one of us. And so it's to this hope we now turn in Psalm 121. You see, Psalm 120 left on its own. This is why I couldn't just leave us in Psalm 120. It'd have been fine if we ended in Psalm 120 because it points us forward. But Psalm 120, read on its own, leaves us in the valley, outside the promised land, But Psalm 121 lifts our eyes to the hills, to the promised land, from where salvation comes. Now, despite his bleak exile in Psalm 120, the psalmist describes hope in Psalm 121. I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. Now, the hills that are mentioned here in this passage are not just generic mountains. The hills is probably referring to the hill, the mount of the Lord, where the temple sets. We see that in Psalm 87, verse one. Rather than becoming fixated on Meshach and Kedar, rather than becoming fixated on all this danger and problem and all the people he lives around, the psalmist looks beyond all of that and sees where the Lord sits enthroned. He looks to where the Lord sits enthroned. He knows that help and salvation can only come from one place. Now, this singular focus on the help from the Lord is instructive. And this is where I kind of hope the conviction gets turned up a little bit. My friends, I need to hear this. Whatever I'm about to say, I just want you to know I desperately need this. I'm a husband, I'm a father, I'm a pastor, which means one thing, I worry a lot. A ton. My wife gets a headache, oh my goodness, what's gonna happen? I read the headlines, I'm like, this is the world my kids are gonna grow up in. I live in fear. I live in economic. What if I say something that makes you all mad every Sunday? (laughs) Too late, late. yes. (laughs) Now, it's relatively easy for you guys. I get mad, I just huff away into my office. You get mad, you huff out the front door. Yeah, all kinds of anxiety. I need to hear this. The psalmist knows that hope doesn't come from allies. Hope doesn't come from savings. Hope doesn't come from 401ks. Hope doesn't come from Roth IRAs. Hope doesn't come from political strongmen. Hope doesn't come from self-made strategies. Hope doesn't come from carefully made schedules. Hope doesn't come from any of those things. As good as those things may be in and of themselves, hope doesn't come from them. Instead... Hope comes from the Lord. He doesn't try to dig himself out of the hole that he's in. He knows that his only hope is the Lord reaching in and pulling him out. He clings in the desperation of faith. Now that begs to ask the question, to where do we look when trouble arises? You see, we are people who tend to try everything else and then when all that fails, then we might ask for prayer. We try everything else We do all these things, we we trust in a lot of different things, and then when all that falls short, then we've been brought to a moment where we should finally pray, right? Well, I guess all that's left is to pray. The psalmist teaches us that when trouble arises, when the reality of life in a fallen world dawns on us, we're to throw ourselves fully onto hope um, in the Lord, upon the Lord, What other things do you tend to seek comfort in? What other things are you uh, trying to bolster your hope in? You You see, sometimes we trust our street smarts. Sometimes we trust our popularity. Sometimes we trust our financial savvy. Sometimes we trust physical power. Other times we put our hope in political power. We think at somehow, some point, one of these things will get us out of this. Surely we can have one of these things that will get us out of this trouble? How do we know that God's promises will still be kept when economic recession hits? How do we know that we will live in a renewed and restored world when countries are threatening to lob nuclear weapons at each other? Oh, surely somebody will step up and negotiate peace. Oh, don't worry about the economic recession. I've got all my savings. What all do we put our trust in first when it comes to trouble? You see, there's something unhealthy about it. And and just as a warning, the Lord has a way of knocking out crutches out from underneath you so that when you fall, you fall on him. He has a way of doing that. He did that to Hezekiah. Hezekiah said, Oh, we've got Egypt as our ally. We have fortress cities and we have gold. What more do we need? Sennacherib comes, kills the Egyptians, destroys the fortress cities. Hezekiah tries to pay him off by sending the gold outside the city. Sennacherib says, Thanks, we're still going to kill you. And so Hezekiah is like, It's all gone. And Sennacherib even makes fun of it. Who are you going to go to? Your God? you don't have allies, you don't have cities, you don't have money. Who are you going to go to, Yahweh? Well, he goes to Yahweh, and in a single night, 185,000 Assyrians die. The Lord has a habit of kicking crutches out from underneath you. So that when you fall, you fall on him. What a great helper we have in the Lord. Look my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come from? The psalmist calls his help the Lord who made heaven and earth. The title Lord or Yahweh is the covenant name of God, which when invoked calls to mind all of God's covenant promises and his relationship to Israel. Bearing the name Yahweh, the Lord allows us to have an intimate relationship with us, by being Yahweh. Yahweh is the one who hears prayers. Yahweh is the one who knows and sees. Yahweh is the one who dwells among his people, right? He could have just stayed at Elohim, God, right? Just the sheer transcendent God. That's how we know him in Genesis 1. But then in Genesis 2, he reveals himself as Yahweh Elohim, the Lord God. Why? Why? Because he doesn't want us just to see him as some transcendently powerful God. He wants us to see him also as the relationally intimate Lord. The one who comes close. He reigns over the Milky Way. He sits enthroned over Orion's belt. And yet he's still the God who can hear your whispered prayers in the middle of the night. The prayers that nobody else hears. He is Lord, Yahweh, who knows his people and is known by them. He is Yahweh who is with them. Yahweh who will keep his covenant. Now he's the relationally intimate Lord who is also the infinitely powerful maker of heaven and earth. The Lord hears prayers and he happens to be the same Lord who transcendently spoke and all things were made. Now he uses what we call merism, right? Heaven and earth is a merism. That's, the, that's your $5 word for today. Merism simply means that it's, it's everything in between. God is in charge of heaven and earth and all in between. It, literally, you could say all things. And this contrast, that polar opposite that he just gave, that he feels like he lives in as far north as Meshach and as far south as Kedar. Well, as great and as big as his exile is, God's power over heaven and earth is greater. His situation in exile is a big deal. It's painful. It's great, huge, massive. The most hurtful thing he's ever lived through. And yet, the Lord's power as creator is even greater. He's the Lord who made the heavens and the earth, whose power exceeds even over his exile. And he looks to that God, the God who is over all things, powerful over all things, who simply speaks a word and he demolishes kingdoms and brings down kings and exalts presidents and and lowers presidents and wipes out societies and moves the ocean and builds nations. That God who's transcendent over all is the God who knows what your heart is groaning for even when you don't. Not just taking your collective, your heart as an individual. He knows you. There may be things you don't want to articulate to anybody else. Guilt, fear, frustration, worries, anxieties, whatever it is. I have fears that I am so afraid that if I said them, y'all would all laugh at how foolish they are. The Lord knows every one of them. And the God of heaven and earth comforts me despite them. How amazing is that? Transcendent God, maker of heaven and earth, who has moved in to be our intimate Yahweh Lord. The author describes the Lord's covenant-keeping work in verses three through eight. So how does the Lord keep his people? His primary emphasis is on that word, keeps, right? So the word keeps can be understood as to guard or to watch over, to stand guard over. It could use any one of those. He uses three different images that all kind of give a different kind of look at what it means to keep. He uses, number one, the Lord is a sleepless sentinel, a guard. He is a shelter giving shade, and he is a shepherd. Those three things. So let's look first at the sleepless sentinel. He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. In the Old Testament, a stumbling or slipping foot is equivalent to a humiliating fall or death. According to the psalmist, the Lord will not let his people fall. They're not going to slip, their feet won't be moved. They're gonna be secure. They're gonna enjoy the stability of his covenantal love. Now, how can they be sure of this? Well, very simply, says the psalmist, God never sleeps. God never sleeps. How many of you slept last night? How many of you have had to sleep at some point in the last week? You see, that's that's by that's our nature as humans. We have to sleep. Some of us have to sleep more often than others. Some of us have to sleep longer than others. But the reality is, we all have to sleep. Can anyone keep going and live? No. But it is characteristic explicitly of God that he needs no sleep. God doesn't get eye. God doesn't lean back on this throne and say, I'm going to take a little cat nap. He neither slumbers nor sleeps, doesn't take a nap, doesn't take a long, deep dive into a REM cycle. He's never unconscious like you or I. I go to sleep, I'm unconscious. You could break into my house and there's a 50-50 shot, I might not wake up. I'm completely vulnerable at that moment. I can't protect my kids that well. I can't protect my wife that well. I can't, I, I'm not standing guard at that moment. I am literally at my most vulnerable state when I'm asleep. Also my most grouchy. <laughs> but the Lord never sleeps. He stands watch over his people. Have you ever thought of how amazing it is that you can close your eyes because God never closes his. Wow. You know, David was about to be killed by Absalom and walked out of the city. And the amazing part of the story is, David gets out of the city and he laid down and slept. Why did David sleep? Because he knew he could. He slept as a powerful statement that the Lord was wide awake. My friends, I don't know what keeps, gives you insomnia at night. You can sleep. It's Father's Day, so naturally we need a Narnia reference, right? One of the greatest gifts that Ozlan gives to people who are in stress or in trouble or even are facing consequences for themselves is he just, you just hear it in this low roar, sleep. And he breathes on them, sleep. And they sleep. And they rest. My friends, you can sleep. Because the Lord does not. Second, he's the shelter giving shade. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day or moon by night. I don't know if you've ever been to Israel, but if you're in Israel during the day, it is hot, okay? Sun beats down on you. In fact, one of the greatest dangers during the day is the sun. You can burn alive out there, okay? You can, you can die, you can be scorched, you can get such severe sunburn. It is a dangerous thing to be without shelter in the middle of the day in Israel. But the night, is equally dangerous. They have jackals. They used to have lots of lions, big lions out in the desert. They had all these predators. They had raiders. They had thieves. So night was just as dangerous. And yet the psalmist says that the Lord is your shade. That, that same word can be translated as your shelter. He's your shelter that doesn't let the sun scorch you or let the wild beasts get at you in the night. Between you and the sun stands the Lord. Between you and the wild beast stands the Lord. You sit in his shadow, according to Psalm 91.1. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide, where? In the shadow of the Almighty. Can you think of how cool it is that we have a God that need not physically impede danger. All we need to do is rest in his shadow. My God's shadow can beat whatever danger the world faces at us. That is a powerful God. He need not move a finger, need not move a hand. His shadow's enough. Resting in the cool, reviving breeze under his shadow, in his shade. Able to live and breathe in his protection. He is our shelter. And then finally, he is our faithful shepherd. The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. The Lord will keep your going out and coming in from this time forth and forevermore. Now, when he says keep you from all evil, obviously the psalmist is not saying he's gonna keep you from suffering. The psalmist, as he's writing this, just wrote of suffering in Psalm 120. But what he is promising is that evil won't come from that Suffering. Evil won't come. Evil is another word for disaster or destruction. It's not going to undo you. Does that make sense? When you suffer, you're not just going to be wrecked. According to Romans chapter 8, verse 28, God works all things who are called to his purposes, that's believers, for the good, which means that even cancer, which he will allow us to get, Even sickness, even heart disease, even job loss, even empty bank accounts, even economic recessions, even war are instruments to do good for us. How so? Well, they draw you near to the one who's in the universe that you need. What a great thing. Is it really a curse or a bad thing if something drives you closer to God? Even death itself. Death itself is nothing more than the the wagon that takes me to the Lord. Can anything be all that bad? He, He keeps me from evil. Death itself is no longer evil for me, but good. How amazing is that? Keeps you from all evil. Why? Because he's the Lord who's with us in our going out and our coming in. That's shepherding language, right? The sheep go out, the sheep come in. He watches over us as we go out and as we come in. He's a good shepherd who makes even our suffering and affliction work for good and for his glory. The psalmist says, he lifts his eyes to his heels from where his help comes. His prayer was eventually answered, you know. When... Mary received the good news that she would give birth to the Savior. She praised the Lord saying, he has helped his people Israel. He has helped. Jesus is the help from the hill. Jesus is the son of God who in great love came as shepherd, took on flesh, died so that the sheep could live. He even experienced exile like you. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 12 says, So Jesus also suffered outside the gate. What is that referring to? Well, outside the city, outside the place where God dwells. He suffered outside the gate in order to do what? To sanctify his people through his own blood. He went to Meshach and Kedar with us and for us so that he could bring us into Jerusalem. He died. He knew the bitterness of life outside the land of peace. Then he spoke of peace, and yet everybody else wanted war. He received destruction. He received the evil and died at the hands of lawless men. Why? Because he is the help Psalm 121 prays for. He's the sentinel who never sleeps. Jesus has a full body in heaven. He's fully man, just as he's fully God. And yet he's the only man in all the universe who never sleeps. He sits on his throne in watchful guard. He's a shelter giving shade. He's a shepherd who laid down his life for the sheep. He died, he rose again, and he ascended. My friends, that ascension part is so important because when, when Jesus went up, he did so so that we could go up with him. So we can pray these psalms of ascents as our own because we are ascending as the Lord ascends. The Lord sits at the right hand throne of God and guess who sits in him, with him. According to Ephesians 2, it's us. We are seated with him in the heavenly places. He went up so you could go up. What do we do then with all this? Two applications, very brief. Allow yourself to be homesick. You're not homesick enough. Allow yourself to be homesick. As a Christian, it's a good and godly thing to sit on your porch and dream about what it's gonna be like. As a Christian, it's good to open up your newsfeed and go, oh, can't wait for this all to be over. And then trust that it will be over. Daydream. Come to these psalms and look through them like a window. Like these, these psalms are a window that we look through and we get a glimpse of, what's, of the home that's to come. I, I'm wearing a pink shirt, so this is a bad day to make this confession, but I recently got into writing poetry. <laughs> I'm going really far out there, I know. But one of the things I like to do, and, and it's a really weird genre of poetry, it's all about trees and gardens and flowers and whatnot. Again, wrong data. confess this. But I've realized that there's a deeper beauty that we miss. There's, some, there's a beauty infused in this flower and in the trees. And I sit on my back porch, and my wife can tell you, I sit on my back porch a lot. I sit on my back porch and I think about how trees teach us how to yearn for God's resurrection. You know, trees, they go through that same transformation you and I do. They weather it out. They're scorched by the sun. There's a point in time where the leaves fall and they, the tree dies in a sense. And yet it doesn't die. How, how, how is it true that he who dies will never actually die? How does Jesus, well, just like a tree, it dies, but it doesn't die. The root lives. And guess what? When spring comes back, boom, brand new tree. I just can't wait for that to be us. A lot of you got some withering leaves on, on the top here, right? <laughs> Luke, Luke has it before we did. And yet, like the trees, we're gonna experience the newness of spring. My friends, have you ever just let yourself get taken away by daydreams like that? Second, Trust. Trust. We eat, we drink, and we dream. We sit on our porch and we think about the world to come, but then do you actually believe that it's coming? I'm not asking you to play pretend. I'm asking you to imagine what's real. And trust, truly trust, that if the whole world were to declare war on itself tomorrow, that if bombs were to start going off, people were to start shooting, cancer tumors were to start showing up on MRIs, graveyards are being filled with your family, trust that you and all who are His will make it home. We pray in that trust today. Father God, we thank you for your love and your grace. We thank you for the goodness of your promises. We thank you for the life that we have, that though we're in the valley, we also, Father, are heading home. We're ascending up the mountain to you. So help us, Father, trust in that today. We pray this in your son's name, amen.